KFUO is a listener-supported radio ministry that needs your support to continue. When you partner with KFUO, you are proclaiming Christ worldwide. November 30th is Giving Tuesday, a day that encourages you to give back in whatever ways you can. Giving Tuesday presents a perfect time each year for you to support your favorite nonprofit organizations, including KFUO Radio. To give to KFUO, call 314-996-1518 or text KFUO to the number 41444 or give online at kfuo.org. Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Friday, November the 26th, Black Friday, and we gather this next hour around the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles and our study of the Song of Songs, chapter 4. The bride and groom are preparing for the marriage feast, and today we mainly hear from Solomon, who admires and speaks of his wife's beauty. I mean, this you know not only points us to maybe how we should be speaking about our wives as husbands, maybe also and, and, and to tell us about how we should speak about uh, wives should speak about their husbands in many ways. But maybe this is not only that, but more importantly, it shows us of the depth of love of Christ for His church. How does this look? That's what we will work through today as we go back to his word. For the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thy Strong Word is graciously underwritten in part by our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation. For more information of their great work, visit lhfmissions.org, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's word, we welcome back Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Pastor Crown, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you, Brady, and uh, blessed Friday to all the saints in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor, what's happening for you, your family, and the work of the saints at Trinity? Well, we are rejoicing, as you noted, in God's gifts. We'll give thanks unto the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever, mm. which isn't, of course, only for a day of Thanksgiving, but, of course, for every day, maybe especially for Sunday, when the saints gather to receive the eternal gift of God. How about your family? What's going on for your family? Oh, my family is doing quite well. Thank you for asking. Our son's back from college for the week, and we're visiting our eldest son and his family. Our daughter is out in Virginia. She'll be back for Christmas. And we have the, the wonderful gift of having my wife's mom live with us. It's a great opportunity for her and her daughter to uh, grow together and for each to serve each other as they had many years ago. But relationships change, and uh, it's good to see both my wife and her mom growing in this situation. Well, and that's a good reminder for us, is to pray for our families who have um, extra family living in the house and, and the ways that God gives us to, to serve and to care, be a caregiver at different stages of life and to uh, be able to serve in that way, not only for pastor and, and his family, but for all people who are um, serving um, as our Lord continues to serve us. So, Pastor, as we look at uh, Song of Songs, Chapter 4, can you ask the Lord's blessing upon our time and begin us in prayer? Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
Let us pray. Oh, Father, you have a perfect and pure love in your Son, Christ Jesus, for us and all of mankind. Now we implore you to illumine our hearts for true love toward you, and grant to us faithful spouses, devout and pious husbands, wise with imperishable beauty of the humble spirit, honoring each other in both body and spirit as co-heirs in Christ Jesus. Let your spirit work within us a deeper, sincere confidence in Christ's love as we hear these words. Instruct us now in your good and gracious will. Hear us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions concerning Song of Songs, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. And this way, because there's a lot of stuff in here that's like, well, what does that mean? And it began with Dr. Chris Mitchell, who basically addressed the question of why is this even in the Bible? So any questions you may have, send us an email, and we'll answer it according to the Word of God. And Pastor, we are in Song of Songs, and we just got done with Chapter 3, which talks about a dream, some ways maybe a nightmare, of, of the, the bride losing her groom. And then also we hear of his arrival, kind of this, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, this macho coming in glory for his wedding, you know, all this army and everything else coming together. And, and it ends with just kind of a gladness of the, of the heart of the marriage feast type of tone. So now we come to chapter four. How do you want to start us off as this wild ride of Song of Songs? Well, I, I think, you know, to, bring, to bridge that gap between Chapter 3 and Chapter 4, it's a bit like the Church enduring the absence of her husband in these days, and we pray, come Lord Jesus, and he will be there for us, and bring us out of this veil of tears. Um, so we have to begin where Scripture begins. And Scripture begins not with this wedding, but with something far prior. We'll go back to Genesis 2 briefly, mm. with the man and the woman with no shame, before God, and before each other. No accusation. That's real beauty. True beauty doesn't exist, does not exist simply in form. That would be only materialism. God breathed into man, and he was a living creature. We are body and spirit. So the true beauty in chapter 4 cannot be simply on the surface, that'd be veneer. The beauty has to be understood as present in body and spirit. So we would say that Solomon is a stand-in of foreshadowing of Christ, or that Christ is speaking through Solomon to his beloved. So uh, the Shulamite represents, uh, is, Eve is every woman believer, is the Church. And so we are looking at a, a private vocation, one might say, um, where the, the husband loves his wife with his words, usually not visible to non-husband and non-wife. But here we have it revealed for catechesis, that we are taught to hold on to what is pure and holy and to repent of the images that are unwholesome. We are to cling to what is chaste and honorable before God. So we, we would begin with you know Christ's incarnation, him assuming the totality of our being, redeeming us as creatures, and then seeing this confession of Solomon, of, of his wife's beauty, of his future wife's beauty, uh, through that 
perfect lens of Christ's perfect love. That'd be the, the first place to begin to, to see this chapter appropriately. And so as you look at it, it's from the perspective of Solomon. Um, and there's a lot of, and I, I've said this before, there's a lot of he said, she said, others said <laughs> in this whole book. And it is quite fascinating for us to look at at this because it can very easily said, okay, so he says this about his wife. Therefore, uh, Pastor Crown and Pastor Finner, this is how you should speak to your wife. Now, how would you monitor that? Because you just talked about how this is obviously about Jesus, but how much of this is also maybe good proverbs for us in our marriages? Any thoughts? Sure. I, I'm glad in some way that Eve isn't described in Genesis 2, or that there is more description of either Solomon or his wife in, book of, uh, in the book. Otherwise, we, we turn it into a, a gym routine or some sort of uh, beauty ritual mm. for our wives or for the, for the husbands. Now, we, we do understand that there is a, a cultural framework that Solomon uses that the Shulamite is in, that at this wedding, there would be an introduction by the guests, maybe somewhat akin to... Oh, the gathering before the loose gathering outside of a church when everybody's talking, and and then you have the invitation of the bride to the groom to describe her before the gathered, and then the the husband or the um, uh, the bridegroom then would describe the beauty of the um, of the bride before those gathered. Now, while we don't have that specifically. In chapter four, we do have Solomon praising his the beauty of his wife, uh, and that is the fundamental which we would have to see. It's a bit like what we hear at the end of Proverbs thirty-one. You know, beauty is uh, beauty is fleeting, uh, charm is deceptive, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Uh, we see that as the foundation. So, the woman who fears the Lord, the woman who has a humble spirit. That gives rise to the true beauty. And as much praised for that beauty, which is God-given, it isn't simply to say that she's only praised for that, that Solomon is simply this infatuated, uh, crazy-minded individual who can't wait. So there, there is that broader setting of we can use part of the cultural framework, but appropriately to praise what is God-given, to recognize the good gifts of body and spirit, and to recognize that what is fading, the body, there is the spirit that holds fast to the promises of Christ and that redemption of the fading body. So I think we're ready... That doesn't directly answer your question, I think, fully. It does. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you can really get lost in the weeds so quickly. And if it was, was, for example, of Genesis, it would have given a whole rundown of how Eve looked, let's say, especially prior to the fall. We would just thought about her beauty and never would have thought about the oneness of marriage, never thought about the role of a husband and wife and especially Ephesians and, and so forth. Um, and, I, and I like how he said that. That's how easily we can get lost in the weeds with his words with, while losing the bigger picture. And you actually answered exactly um, the direction I wanted, and even better than I was looking. So I, I, that's, that's what I just heard. So thank you, Pastor. 
So, Pastor, as we look at this, I'm ready to dig in. Are you ready to dig in? I am ready. Okay. Chapter 4, Solomon admires his bride's beauty. Reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, Chapter 4. And we'll read the first seven verses. Solomon says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind the veil, your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in the row of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, and all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawn twins of a gazelle, and that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So, Pastor, like you said, this is this is good poetry. He is speaking words that obviously no one wonders about his view of the Shulamite woman, his wife. So, how would you break this down and how this relates to us? Not just a nice poem, but the Word of God. So, first of all, Solomon uses words. Now, that might be almost too obvious to say because you just declared a word. You read a word. But... He begins with what we might say is the most important aspect here, and that is the mind. The mind hears the words, the ears hear the words, and she hears the words. She's, if you will, cultivating her. He is planting his seed of love within her by these profound words. He's recognizing that she is a, a creature of God with a, a special situation, a special status before him. And he recognizes that with this, as you said, this profound poetic expression, going from the top of her head, not quite to her feet, but it's fairly all-encompassing. We have eight features of her noted here, and he, again, wants us to see that she is this flawless helpmeet for him. He doesn't use that word help me, of course, but he expresses that, that perfect match in terms of beauty for him. And so well, let's break it down a little bit. He begins by saying, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Like you said, it's like he's it's like he's um uh preaching her identity down into her soul, you know, from head to feet. Just saying this over and over again, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And then he uses all this imagery of animals and and plants and so forth. And like I said, I can get literally lost in the weeds or uh, maybe the plants or the animals, if you will. Um, So just start at the beginning. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. What is he starting us off with? I mean, obviously I know what he's saying, but why is this an important way to begin? Well, the the tradition in Solomon's day was to have a summary at the beginning and then a summary at the end of your 
poetry as the husband or the, the groom introducing his wife to those hearing, he'd make a confession before the crowd that, look at who I'm marrying, and I recognize this. I'm not simply awestruck that I've overcome, but I'm, and I say, rationally approaching this. There's a, both a pathos and a, a logos, a reason and an emotion present here that he is expressing not only to her, he's speaking to her, but also that the, the guests hear this. Is that possible mm-hmm. that they are also hearing this? And um, confessing her beauty. So there's a summary at the beginning the end, and then he will, if you will, put all the books between point A and point B, and everything will fit between those two points. I guess with the description, I'm um, leading people astray by saying that people are, are there uh, because people probably aren't there because he described this kind of intimacy. And it does make me think because, you know, this is the song of Solomon. So there definitely was a singing aspect to this also of, of how this would hit the ears, if you will. And it kind of reminds me of today's songs, you know, the love songs that you hear on, on – um, on the radio or on your podcast or whatever it might be, um, that it, it is interesting how he uses all this imagery that some of it we really can understand. And for us, some of this, we don't like, I've never looked at my wife and said, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Like I've never used that imagery before and I haven't heard it in any modern day music. So any of these, um, uh, visuals that he gives anything you want to highlight of, Wow, that's kind of interesting. What does that mean? Or anything that you found on those uh, image, images that he portrays? Well, you can see that Solomon is immersed in the natural world rather than an artificial world. Now, the images which you see, he sees the, the world that God has made and uses that to describe. He doesn't use, except for the Tower of David, artificial or manufactured images. They're what God has done. And I think that beauty, which is inherent, provides a good foundation for us to address our spouses. A bit like what Jesus does in Matthew 6. He says, look at the lilies of the field or the sparrows. There is something in that created world that we can understand and that can apply to ourselves as those who have dominion over that and have a, a God-created expression rather than, um, you know, the fallen man. And the, the love songs of today aren't really love songs, they're lust songs, uh, mostly. Mm-hmm. Expression of, of, they are abstracting the body from the spirit, and they are destroying the integrity of the person by looking at particular visual features that everybody can see. But they are simply then parts rather than the the unity of the person. And the fact that Solomon has a summary at the beginning and the end calling her beautiful uh, keeps these keeps these uh, members of her body as one. And they keep them unified. So that's where I begin with this very physical description. Uh, I've never, like you, called told my wife that she has uh, dove eyes, maybe doe eyes, um, that where, you know, the, the big eyes, we tend to be attracted to those doe eyes with, with creatures. But 
the the appeal of the eye, he starts there of like almost I wouldn't call it a window to the soul, but how she perceives him and how he perceives her. It isn't with anything else like her her torso or her breasts or her ears, but with her eyes. The perception of him and her his perception of her. And and it, it is interesting. I'm I'm trying to gather myself a little bit of how much I ever want to get into the to the weeds of the flock of goats, the flock of shorn ewes, um, the scarlet thread, the the cheeks of the pomegranate behind your veil, um, your the neck, the 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 breasts, the 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 day breeze, and all of those things. And I, I'm comfortable with him being able to look at her. With all blemish, and how can we not look at Ephesians five twenty seven? You know, when it talks about how the the husband is to present his wife as a as a as a bride without blemish, and obviously this points us to Christ and and how He sees us. But I but I also think about well, this is interesting because He's looking at her from head to toe as flawless in every way, which which is not really something that we can redo on this side of eternity. But when we're able to see Christ in this text. And we kind of have a better understanding of how God sees us. What do you? What I mean? What are your thoughts of how far you want to go in the weeds and the bigger picture? Obviously, with Jesus. Yeah, I, I don't think your your comment is not about the weeds. It's really about having an ability to see this clearly, mm. and rather than seeing this as why is this in Scripture, we can rejoice that it is in Scripture yeah. of how the the husband is able to perceive his wife despite our present fallenness, with such beauty that she is a creature of God, to be joined to Him, and therefore she is the—we're not quite saying the the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but we're getting close to that in terms of the husband describing and loving the physical creation next to him. But that can't be true again, because otherwise we, we become these materialists, unless we see the, the beauty of her spirit. And that's supposed here. Uh, that's our, our hermeneutic of understanding, of reading this. And it is true, as you said, Christ loving his bride, or from the Old Testament in Ezekiel 16, God finding this abandoned woman by the road, and then washing her and clothing her, and making her the most beautiful woman to be adored by everybody. And that's probably the foundation we should have for, it is the foundation we should have for approaching this. And then the teachers are simply saying the, um, the ways in which we are fearfully and wonderfully made to court somebody else. And because we do tend... So you're right. That's, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish that. Oh, um... I just forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> exactly, me too. So now we're both forgetting. No, um, it, it, it's uh, definitely one of those things because in chapter one is very clear of how she perceives herself, which she describes herself as lowly, not coming. I mean, it's, it's kind of implied that she did not come from a rich family, that she failed. I mean, she's supposed to be the keeper of the vineyards and her family's upset her because she didn't keep up her vineyards. And so she calls herself dark, probably uh, um, been in the sun a lot, so her skin wasn't in great shape. This is kind of how she sees herself, which makes her say, you know, draw me near um, to you, 
let us run, it says in chapter, chapter 1. And here we see how she sees herself and how he sees her. Now, what we don't want to make this into is a self-confidence booster. We see this a lot in our culture where it's like, well, you might see this, but you got to be confident. This is all about our relationship with the Lord, um, about how our identity is in Christ, and this is how he sees us. And so we live and trust in that identity in Christ and that clearly we have flaws, but this isn't a motivational speech for confidence um, the way the world speaks about it. But if we do are going to speak about confidence, it's confidence in Christ and how we are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb type of language. So I, I do kind of struggle with this because we can see this as a, see, you think you're dark and lonely, but your husband sees you as beautiful in every single way. How do we make sure we don't fall into that trap? Well, I, I do think you're right. that It is a wooing by, by Christ for his bride, because if we sit in isolation, as, as it were, let's take the position as the spouse, as the Shulamite, thinking about ourselves, our failures and our callings, even as wife, uh, honoring the husband who has called us, if we only think inwardly, we can meditate upon our faults and failures and know that we have in no way deserved the lavish love that he has poured out upon us. But that's the purpose, I believe, of, of Solomon speaking the words to her, that she that he takes her out of her own framework and pulls her into his framework by the words. Now, one might even maybe go so far as saying, um, this is a forensic declaration of beauty, that whatever she might think of herself, it is not what she thinks, but rather what he knows to be true because of a faithful love. So she should hold on to the words he has declared, not how she sees herself in the mirror. Ah, that is good. That is good. And now let me, let me, let me do this then. Is as we hear that, how does that relate to us? Like how would you encourage your member with this identity that too often we find our identity in the mirror as opposed to the words of our Lord how would your encouragement be for, for our listeners, um, for anybody, uh, your own congregation, about finding our identity in the right place? Well, uh, I'd probably go to like James 1, that James says, I'll expand a little bit, that James is saying, you're probably looking in the wrong mirror and remembering your identity from the wrong mirror. What you need to be looking at is in the right mirror and not forgetting who you are. So the culture around us, with all of its mirrors, love songs, all the love signs, TV shows and commercials, you know, sex sells, right? The appearance, Instagram, uh, the photoshopping, etc. That's all part of the wrong mirror. And what you need to hear is what Christ says to you, which isn't a mirror, but rather his declaration. You need to, if you will, sit still and let the Lord's Word declare you His beauty. Let His words shape you. you know, all the beauty that the world seems to recognize will fail. I mean, one might say that her eyes will not be so beautiful in, in 40 or 50 years. Uh, her breasts will not be like fawns in 40 or 50 years. Every part of her body, like his, will be rearranged when they get older. So we know that phase. So we don't look at that for our identity. 
will be disappointed. So we have to listen to the beauty of the external words spoken to us, like wife depends upon husband and husband depends upon wife. You know, she'll have this beautiful poem in chapter 5 where she gets to respond to his word and he'll have to depend upon her word for his his virility, for his handsomeness, and not for what he gains, for what power and wealth and all the spices that the Queen of Sheba brings. He'll depend upon her word. So that's what I, I, I counsel the congregation to hear the word of the one who has loved you perfectly. Well, Pastor, this is I'm, you're breaking this down beautifully, and pun intended, actually. Um, as we look at what God has given to us here and our identity, and I really want to dig into that more as we go through the next number of verses, which is vital to our understanding of our own identity in Christ. But right now, we are need to take our break. We are studying Song of Songs, Chapter 4, with Pastor Stuart Crown, and we will be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back. We are studying Song of Songs, Chapter 4, with Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Pastor, we've gone through these first seven verses, and like you mentioned, the beauty beauty of this Shulamite woman, as seen through the eyes of Solomon, shapes her identity, and the words give her that identity as beautiful as opposed to the mirror or other standards that we have or even other people's words because it's the words, Lord, that declare us righteous in Christ. And so as we, as we look at that, there is that reality. We know that we are not, um, we know that we are flawed, but here he says that there's no flaw in you. And it makes me rethink really about how... Uh, how we need to hear that continuously in our lives of we will be reminded of our sins and how often we need to hear those precious words of forgiveness to say you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what you do in your church. Pastor, How? why is that important for your congregation, all of our congregations, to fill people with this identity as our identity comes through the words? Well, the identities that we have from the world, we know that they are temporary, even as they are given by God in our various vocations, but they pass away. And they can subtly shift over the years. We are not as productive as we might have been in an office or uh, on the farm, wherever it might be. And if we root our identities in that which is fading, uh, what do we become then? But if we are rooted in Christ, the raised one who has ascended and sitteth at the Father's right hand, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are, we are seated already there, then our identity can fade. It, 
permanent. It's we are glorified already in Christ Jesus. Now we're waiting for that full revelation, but it's already certain. Where the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that these words, the declaration of forgiveness, that we are heirs of God in Christ, that's already true. And so we hope on that, and not on the, the fading glories mm. of the world. Mm. Pastor, as we move forward, verses 8 through 11, I always want to ask this, because, well, you, <laughs> you're a great theologian that has always new ideas. Is there anything else in the first seven verses you want to highlight? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by... Uh, your neck is like the Tower of David. <laughs> okay, yeah. Is, is she, is she, she's not a weightlifter. Uh, I, I think that expresses the, you know, the symmetry, her, her stature, her stature, and probably also the jewelry she's wearing. And that's one thing that we don't talk about much ah, here. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's wearing a veil, we know that. And she's wearing some necklaces. She recognizes that. We're not sure what else she might be wearing because he describes everything else. But it's uh, the, the juxtaposition of a tower and then gazelle. It just struck me. Uh, looking at the ornamentation and, and praising her for her ornamentation. Mm-hmm. I want to say that there's a definition you've, I've heard of, and this is where it's, it's kind of, a, it's a little bit difficult where you and me as men try to describe what this all means or to capture, as I would say, femininity that is definitely portrayed here. But I do remember growing up that you and had ladies that were well-dressed, and that's including necklaces and, and rings, and I, I guess I can't, I can't even pick out exactly what it was, but the term would always be, she's a classy woman. And that's what I'm, what I'm kind of capturing or hearing from what you're saying is that is that that he not only uh, describes her beauty, the femininity, the, the 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 femininity that she has, which is obviously the compliment to us as men, but also what she is wearing, which brings us to this understanding of of heaven. I think of, of heavenly glory that he is, you know, the, the 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 gold and the silver and the and the the new Jerusalem and everything that surrounds all this, the beauty that is there. I think there's a glimpse of heaven in that as well. Any thoughts? Yes, that the jewelry that she's wearing or the, the spices that are described later are all supportive of her innate, we'll say, physical beauty. They don't add to it, but they are like, her beauty is like the diamond, and the spices and the ornamentation would be a bit like the setting on a wedding ring, one might say. So there are little sparkly uh, rubies and emeralds, and then there's the central diamond, which is her physical beauty, her beauty in Christ Jesus. And I think if we see our own ornamentation that way, that it's supportive of who we are, it doesn't make us that, unless we talk about the righteousness of Christ as our garment of salvation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll have a better understanding of what beauty is, of how this beauty in, Sol- in Solomon's song works. That's very helpful, yeah. So I, I'm ready to move forward. Anything else you have as we get to 8 through 11? Uh, not at this point. All right, very good. Um, 8 through 11, we'll read. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. 
Come with me from Lebanon, depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and fragrance of your oils and any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So there's a lot of reference here to Lebanon. It begins and ends the the portion that we just read. And there definitely is continuation of this beauty but also, you know, coming to Lebanon. So what is he talking about? So he is inviting her away from her home of Verdict, Lebanon. Uh, Psalm 72 describes Lebanon as this very productive area in God's creation. But he's calling her out of that into a luxurious chamber designed for her. So she's being invited out of her home and he will, uh, she will cleave to him just as he will to her, and there will be this unique then chamber only for them. And in this location, there is the, the rejoicing in a, the unity, the intimacy of, of spirit, but also, of course, of the body, as he describes, or probably would be uh, kisses, and very passionate at that. Uh, you know, how much... Better is your love than wine. Coming from this area, there's a lot of great wine. How can love be better? So I think there's a couple of things. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had some interesting comments about this. Uh, Love is better than wine because love can be enjoyed without question. This is true love. Uh, True love in terms of Solomon to his wife. This love never turns sour, never goes bad. Uh, this love never produces ill effects. And love, this love produces a sacred exhilaration, mm. a unity that you know that is God-given. So I thought there was some um, profound insight into why this love in this chamber is better than wine. And that's definitely highlighted before this point, um, I think chapter one, if I remember correctly, and it speaks about the love of wine. Okay, so we have that. Obviously, that would have been plentiful. You have a lot of uh, of talks of fragrance of oils, and we've we've speaking about we've spoken about that previously. Just that that scent that comes up, and it reminds you of your identity. You know that that like for example, there's certain times of the year you can go outside and you can smell and say it is fall. Or you can go outside, at least in Minnesota, I should say that. There's times you, you can smell and say, yep, that's the spring. Or the smell of dreadedness in the winter, where it's like, that's definitely a winter smell. I know what that is. But here, the smell proclaims the beauty of his wife. The smell reminds him of the love that he has for her. And and then that just even, even brings more fullness of his view of her as one who is was perfect in every single way. I found that interesting, the fragrance and the uh, smells and bells and whistles, whatever you want to call it, um, that really captured his view of his bride. Any thoughts on the smells and the fragrance and all these different imagery? Yeah, yes. Um, not to go too far with this comparison, but 
she uh, is his promised land. Ah. So she becomes his Garden of Eden, his uh, Garden of Sensual Delight. And it isn't simply through the ear or through the eye. It's also through the touch and also through the sense. It's all of his body, all of his life is responding to who she is. Uh, and this really, I think, deepens our view of biblical understanding of beauty. It isn't simply the eye, but it is. God addresses all of us, all of the senses. You think of the temple or the tabernacle adorned with the palms and the, the pomegranates. The beauty of nature fundamentally built into the recreation of temple and tabernacle. So Solomon, if you will, imports that and says, my wife here has that same beauty created, picking up on, I think, in a broad way, Genesis 1. So what, now, okay, now you got my, now you got my mind thinking here quite a bit, is that in a certain sense, this gives us a glimpse of the beauty from Genesis pre-fall. Is that kind of where you're leading with that, or am, well, I, am I way off? No, that's, that's definitely where I think it is. Yeah. And that's why the end of Genesis 2 is, is so important. I mean, there's no snake in this garden. There's no temptation in this garden. It is holy and pure. And therefore, he's able to describe her without leading us astray, about her beauty. And she used all of God's created gifts, uh, such as the description of the goats descending her hair, cascading down her shoulders, maybe. Or all the all the, uh, the spices that he brings in. He uses that to adorn. Uh, we probably end up saying that this is about how prayer and praise uh, adorns our unity with Christ. Uh, the sense the smells, everything is possible in the divine service to adore the one who has loved us. Or how he has poured out upon us this beauty, which isn't simply you know, skin deep, but is meant to pervade our whole lives. And so this makes me think of, you know, like you mentioned, that she is the promised land, the milk and honey, you know, I'll bring you to the land of milk and honey, which just brings us then also to the resurrection. I mean, this is where you have the promised land ideology, you have the 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 pre the pre fall Adam and Eve, but then you have the resurrection language here as well, where there will be perfection, milk and honey, the promised land, the um, all of these things that we are capturing, the beauty will be in its perfect state when Christ returns and the marriage feast. What are your thoughts? Yeah, there, there's, of course, the, the great foreshadowing, the great foreshowing of, of Christ's love, and then the, the fulfillment. You get to see part of that with the, the physicality here, that we don't, we don't whisk off to heaven. Uh, this, this vaguely defined ethereal heaven, but that it is corporate, it's corporeal. There's a vigor to the body. There's a beauty of the body that we simply can't understand that even as beautiful as Solomon's words are, there is not yet the fullness of the beauty of the resurrection or Revelation 21 and 22. 
we're just being drawn ahead. We're being wooed all the more to the the to the fulfillment. Uh, my my grandmother, uh, uh, when I began serving as a pastor, uh, told me about premarital, and she said, you know, the best day of the wedding of the marriage is always the next day. So you're looking ahead to that next day. You're being pulled ahead by the word of the spouse. Here, Solomon is pulling ahead his wife, uh, which occurs in chapters 5 through 8, being pulled ahead to the fulfillment or the next days of the wedded life, or wedded bliss, one might say. Wow, that is really, that's really profound, because you think of your own wedding day, it's, I mean, it's a hot mess. I mean, you are so busy, you're thinking about so many things, this person wants a picture, that person wants this, is this right, is that right, is this song going to happen, where do I stand, parents are emotional, grandparents are, you're giving them roses, and there's people in the pews you don't even know, I mean, they go down the whole list, and you're right, that next day, there was a comfort of being able to say, this is now my wife. And I hope that this comfort, yeah. this is now my husband, and we're united as one. And what a perfect way for us to think about the anticipation of the marriage feast where we will know our identity and the comfort that will be there when Christ returns. That's what I'm feeling right now. And do you have anything to add to that? That's this awesome way for us to think through this. Yeah, something that I'm not going to disclose who these individual, individuals are. I want to know people of my congregation. I performed a, a wedding ceremony a couple of weeks ago, which was an arranged marriage. And one might think that an arranged marriage would be the least likely to succeed. I think it's the most likely because there is the commitment already, the marriage framework into which they are put. And I, I think I see that here. She's being brought into something which is pre-existing, mm. and his words assure her of that. That she's not going into, what does this guy think of me, really? Uh, no, this yeah. is what he thinks, and this is what he has done. And that gives such sweet assurance to the, the future wife. She can only respond with uh, the praise in chapter 5. Oh, my goodness. That is, that is phenomenal. You know what? I could probably talk about this all day, but we need to move on in our text. Thank you for those insights, Pastor, as we continue 12, and we'll go through 16, well, not quite 16 all the way through, but um, through 16 before we hear from her. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices a garden fountain, a well of living water in the flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow up my garden and let its spices flow. Pastor, I don't know how we cannot see the heaven in this, the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, we just studied this tree of life and, and the, the, the water of life and, and all of this stuff when you see the, the new heaven and new earth. And here, I feel like they are just pushing us forward to see all the beauty, to smell all the beauty, and to hear it, literally hear it, with the garden fountain of living water that is there. That's what I'm, I'm feeling. I'm almost feeling sensory overload right now. What, else, what, what, do, you, what, else, what do you see here? Well, I do think it's 
if you will, the sensory push to the maximum. Yeah. Uh, I'll begin with that. <laughs> you know, all of those spices, except for, I think, henna, are imports. Ah. Nothing is local. Okay. Which means that Solomon has used his well to bring in nard and saffron from the Far East, uh, the calamus and the cinnamon from Arabia, the frankincense from Arabia, the myrrh from Arabia, the aloes probably from North Africa. So he's not going to his garden picking things out. He's not running down to the 7-Eleven. Sorry for owners of 7-Eleven. He's going to the most expensive source possible and showering all of these gifts upon his beloved. It is indeed what Christ did in Ephesians 5. He gave himself. And that's what Solomon is doing. He's putting the gold ring, all of his wealth upon his bride's finger. Only without a gold ring, he's using spices and everything else. It's just a tremendous pull toward the, 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 the pure, perfect, holy love that Christ has for us. And expand, everything. Expand, expand on that, uh, Pastor, because like, how does this show us the depth of Christ's love for us? So I'm going off what I believe would be that Solomon has to expand his well. And he has to, if you will, go to the market or go to his advisors and say, where can I get the best possible census? Now, uh, the Queen of Sheba brings to him the abundance of spices like never brought into Israel before or after. So maybe there's something there. But certainly he does give himself, he shows her that he will pour out his wealth upon her. There is nothing in his kingdom that will prevent him from showing himself in this way upon her. And so there is nothing that prevents Christ from giving himself entirely to his people. Not the disciples in the boat saying, oh Lord, we're going to perish. Or will there be enough food? Or uh, will, how long will these stones be upon each other in Jerusalem? Or will he now restore the kingdom to us? He has given us himself, and if there is proof of that with the resurrection, that's where we are. That's the choice of Christ. Well, like you said, there's there's a a sensory overload (laughs) that definitely overcomes you when you actually stop and think about all that is being said. Now, I want to go to the end of verse 16, because at this point, we've got the tapestry of, of the, we, not only do we hear him speak it, but we see him live it. Not only do we see him live it, but we see him um, lay it out before her so that even if you are not her, you walk in and you know somebody has created this for the love of somebody. And so we see it, we can feel it, we can smell it. Now we hear from her. So at the end of verse 16, she speaks very few words. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat his choicest fruits. So she's, I think she's doing an invitation here. What is she inviting? Oh, yes, I, you are exactly right. He has used his words. Now she speaks. And he, she's essentially saying, act upon your desires. I think this is a bit like 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, where Paul says, the spouses belong to each other's spouses. My body belongs to my wife, her body belongs to me. She is saying here, 
my life, my body belongs to you. Enjoy it. Well, and that and that is, uh, uh, I think, pure and simple. That's it. Yeah, that's Holy exactly right. Oh my goodness! And so, how do you say it? Nothing says love like that. I think. I think that's exactly how it said that he is doing all these things for her to say, you know what? And then as for us, and this is what I would put in as a gospel handle into this, is that when we're actually able to see the most precious blood shed for for us, when we're actually able to look at the cross and ask the question, what sin did he not die for? And we know that he died for all, and he died for me. I was on his mind, and the reason he did that is because of me, and he did it out of love. That we're able to see that in his fullness, that is where we by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to say, Lord, I'm yours. You know, Lord, I'm yours. So help me to serve in your kingdom. Help me to yeah. serve in these things. And Lord, I'm yours. Is that a connection, do you think? Yeah, I, I don't want to do violence to the psalm, but, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, she's saying, oh, taste and see what the God has provided is good. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It isn't simply that plane of physicality, it is understanding that there is joy in knowing what, what God has done between us, and this is the covenantal aspect, that as they enjoy each other, the presence of God in the midst at the tabernacle. Uh, maybe I should have read First Kings and the construction of the, 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 uh, the temple more thoroughly before this, right. to see the parallels. As he built the temple, does he then carry that into this particular description, or which which direction does it go? Does he apply to the love of God to her, or does he say, oh, I see in you, and now I begin to recognize better the profundity of God's love for me and the sacrifices? So as you look at these Next, well, this next verse, we will we'll dig into a little bit of chapter 5, just verse 1. We hear from her simple words, I am yours, you know, basically speaking. And now he speaks, and then we have that chorus, like that kind of chorus understanding of everything that kind of wraps it all together. So first we hear from him. Mm-hmm. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the others say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So he, she said, I am yours. And then he came to her, and he enjoyed. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed the whole thing. And the others are proclaiming loudly, eat and drink, and for love is everywhere, and this is not some kind of weird hippie love. We're talking love that is founded in the Lord and, and, and in Christ as we hear this. How would you break down these? I mean, it's, just, it's such wonderful. I just feel like I wanted to sing for joy when I hear these words. What do you have, Pastor? Well, I, I think the first thing we ought to address, which we haven't, is why does he call her his sister? Which sounds really awkward given mm. our issues today. And the context is important for this, because in that day you could use the word sister to refer to a, a profound relationship that is um, in the Old Testament Apocrypha, like in Tobit, 
uh, brother and sister represent husband and wife. But there's also a, a larger cultural issue that when you called your wife, your sister, it could elevate her, her status in society. So if he calls her his sister, she's not only one a bride from Lebanon, but he puts her into his status in Jerusalem. So he's mm-hmm. elevating her out of that situation into his situation. Ah, okay. And there could be no, no divorce at that point. No divorce. So this is a permanent bond. I'm yours, you're mine. And so I, I think when the others see this, they say, yes, be drunk on this love. Uh, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the eye of the married. Um, the spiritual and physical understanding of this. And they, they, the others see this. They know about this. Pastor, in about so the, a... the consummation, which we... Go keep ahead. Going. Keep going. No, keep going. Consummation. Keep going. Oh, okay. The, the consummation, which he has expressed in chapter 5, verse 1, is we, as holy husband and wife, understand that the consummation, unity, is a profound aspect of being one flesh. Mm. And so we want husband and wife to enjoy the gift of God. But it isn't, if you will, self-centered. It's rejoicing in the gift that God has given and then turns us outward in terms of service of the how of the, of the spouse, either to the to the wife or to the husband, and then ultimately, of course, we can't avoid going to Revelation twenty one and twenty two, right. where we have this. There is now no longer a wooden sacrament, as it were. You know, God and the Lamb are the light in the city. There is no more barrier. There is face to face. We'll see him as he is, and the love will be, can I say, consummated. No more description through this, but it will be face-to-face. And there'll be no shame. Pastor, that's our time. Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California, giving us God's strong word from Song of Songs, Chapter 4. Pastor Crown, thank you for the gifts. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. Saints of our Lord, the Lord has called the church to be his bride. We see it beautifully, not only in the words, but the actions of the groom. And as we hear in the great hymn, the church is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Song of Songs is all about this because it's all about Jesus. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.